Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, friends. Welcome back to In The Pink with me, Natalie Pinkham and Bose, helping you stay connected in these strange times. I tell you what, I felt very grateful for feeling connected with you guys, the In The Pink listeners, um, and your emails and tweets and Insta messages have helped me maintain some semblance of sanity because isn't it bonkers trying to homeschool? (laughs) Homeschooling! I mean, who knew it could be so tough? Um... And then if you're factoring in trying to keep in the house clean and get food from somewhere and do a job, which, you know, obviously is rather different at the moment, but I'm still trying to work for Sky. It is, uh, yeah, it's tricky. Today was, um, yeah, not my finest, proudest moment as a mother. I put them both on the sofa under a duvet and put a movie on. That was (laughs) classified as homeschooling. I mean, I justified it in my mind by saying it was educational uh, it was Shrek, so yep, big fail there for me. But anyway, they were happy, and ultimately, happiness is the most important thing right now, isn't it? But yes, if you've got any other tips, please do share. Okay, next up on In the Pink is a man who is very familiar to all you racing fans out there. He's won 13 Grand Prix and raced for three iconic teams in Williams, McLaren and Red Bull. I am, of course, talking about Mr. David Coulthard. And being the articulate, eloquent and interesting guy that he is, he's got loads of anecdotes which he's very happy to share. He gives me a great insight into what it was like working for Ron Dennis, for example, which, yeah, I found that very interesting indeed. He also talks about the pain of losing his sister and uh, she was actually also a very talented racer. He goes on to explain how that helped motivate him to make the W Series the success that it's become. Um, It, like all other sports, is struggling at the moment, but no doubt really surprised a few people in its inaugural year. Um, And that was in no small part down to DC. So fantastic. Okay, here's one for you. He also gives his view on Schumacher versus Hakkinen. Who was better? Who was faster? It's a debate that could go on and on, but he gives his thoughts on In the Pink. So here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. David Coulthard. 
Um, hey DC, okay. great to see you. Um, looking magnificent with that beard. Wow, that is um, that's a that's a piece of art right there on your chin. Yeah, well, thank you. You know, it takes quite a long time to paint all the white in because obviously I am timeless and my natural sort of brown hair would be coming through. But I just thought a bit of white would. I'm trying to keep up with Damon. You know, you you hang out with him, so I thought if I'm going to if I'm going to be chatting to you, I should try and have something resembling a champion. I mean, it's it's the sort of intellectual badger look, isn't it? <laughs> well, are, are badgers known as the intellectuals of the animal world? Is that what it so. is? I just think I just think they're. Yeah. Is that the expression? <laughs> <laughs> I want to know what's going on under the hat. Uh, just a lot of hair as well. I've not had a haircut, and uh, and yeah, I, I, the thing is, you're probably like my wife in that you wake up in the morning and other than a bit of colour here and there, you, you're just your hair's perfect and all the rest of it. Where I wake up in the morning with my short hair and it's like there. And I'm like, how the hell does that happen? So what I've, I've taken to doing during this lockdown, is I do sort of domestic activities and chores. You know, I get up, obviously, check mail and make sure I'm not missing anything. But then I, I kind of stay, you know, unwashed until, uh, you know, normally this would be my gym time. So I'm normally doing some exercise, but I've sort of delayed that in the interest of talking to you. And then I'll hit the gym, have a swim, uh, shower, and that'll be me settled down. So then I'll, you know, obviously coiffure my hair into something amazing rather than sort of hiding it under a hat. So have you found that a bit of structure, a bit of routine has helped you cope with lockdown? Well, I've not had a problem with that at all. And again, you know, I'm here with, with Karen, uh, Dayton, our son, and then Karen's daughter, uh, Shanna, who's uh, obviously not at university right now. So uh, Shanna pretty much just, you know, does what students do, which is only arrive for food time. Uh, Dayton, you know, goes around doing all the stuff you expect a little boy to do. And, you know, I'm, I'm obviously spending quite a bit of time with him. And then Karen's very organized and structured. And I think I'm quite well organized and structured as well. So we just naturally have found a flow uh, of, you know, parenting and house duties. And, you know, she takes care of all the shopping, I have to say, because she's fantastic at that. But I do, you know, the sort of, well, I wouldn't say cooking, but setting up and cleaning and, and washing the dishes and stuff like that, which is fine. And the, the big thing for me is I'm a village boy. So I spent more than, you know, more, well, I was going to say more than half my life. That's not correct. I left Scotland when I was 18. But I spent a large part of my life having to, to be creative because you grew up in a village. You, you don't have cinemas or, you know, Mickey D's to hang around outside. You, you literally had a bus stop and that was it. So... I'm, I'm good with staring at nature and looking at the water and stuff like that. I, I really don't have a problem with it. So I just make sure, yes, long, long, long answer to say I'm structured. But also a, a great pleasure, I'm sure, and a rare one to be able to have that much family time. Because, you know, you, you work, I think, probably the hardest of anyone I've ever met. And you're always on the go. You're always flying. It's quite nice just to be still for a while. Well, it is, of course, and we're all in this situation, and I'm sure, like yourself, not traveling when you've got young family, uh, and we've all got friends who are kind of similar to ourselves in that we, we, we have traveling uh, workloads. So everyone I've been reaching out to has been making good with the time, and I guess unless you were in some sort of really 
difficult period of a relationship, then th there, there's a joy in being at home. You know, thankfully, you know, we've, we haven't had any issues at all over the several, several weeks we've been here. So, uh, yeah, this is the longest I've been in one place forever. And, yeah, I'm good with it. You know, I accept that it's been an amazing run. I accept there's, you know, clearly much bigger picture stuff out of any challenges that we are dealing with in terms of business and what have you, of course, you know, we're dealing with life and death and, and a lot of people are dealing with terrible adversity. So I, I constantly remind myself how lucky we are doing what I can remotely to, to you know, help those that aren't as, as fortunate. And for the, the rest, I am being ever thankful for the health and well-being of, of the family. And how impressed and proud have you been of the response from the Formula One world? You know, the, this incredible collaboration that we've seen of brilliant technical brains uh, and uh, resource, effort, energy, time, all the rest of it. You know, these are teams that have been fighting tooth and nail on the racetrack and then have just come together to make ventilators, you know, volume, at volume. Uh, it's impressive stuff, isn't it? Yeah, that doesn't surprise me, and it won't surprise you because you've been part of the, the, the racing community for long enough. But they're competitors, but they, they can't help but come together. You know, they all talk about each other behind their back and all the usual stuff, but then they're drawn to each other because there's that desire to want to look your competitor in the eye and, and understand how you can beat them. And if you've had success, you expect them to shake your hand. And if they've had success you shake their hand and you're planning how you can topple them the next time. So it doesn't surprise me at all. But one thing that I, I did speak to a couple of senior people in Formula One and, and they disappointingly told me that none of the ventilators were actually needed in the end. So they, they sort of rallied into, you know, getting all this, this uh, technology available and, and making something uh, that could be deployed. And in, in the end, it, as terrible as it is, and clearly there's a lot of tragedy in the UK, running out of ventilators has not been the issue, but it's good to know that we can have some more if we need them. Yeah, I spoke to a paramedic friend of mine who I was asking the same question about, and he said, look, we haven't used them, but that's not to say that we won't, and it's good to stockpile them so that we are in a position to react, you know, God forbid, if we are in a situation again, which, which could well happen. Um, actually, your old boss, Ron Dennis, um, has been magnificent in producing these these meals for frontline workers. Uh, Ron is something of an enigma, and I'm sure. What, what did you have? Nine consecutive seasons? At, is that right at at McLaren? But that's astonishing to to be at, you know in this modern era for any professional sports person to be um, at a team for that long is is impressive. But what was it like working with Ron? He is, as I say, something of an enigma, isn't he? Yes, Ron is a complicated individual in many ways, but it doesn't surprise me at all that he has reached out to, to help in a way that he can um, during this, this situation because he's got a big heart and, he, and that's always been the case. You know, during my time at McLaren, um, you know, he was a big supporter of the Tommies campaign, which is uh, research into stillborn children. Uh, I think, sadly, uh, his, his ex-wife and himself had first-hand experience of, of dealing with that issue. And so, you know, Mika and I, or Kimi and I, we, we'd be involved in fundraising with that on an annual basis. And other charities that Ron has, has supported over the years, 
and you know his staff as well there was there were several examples of where he really gave people space if they had difficulties with their family or the children or their own health because he he really sincerely was always about family first so despite the difficulties i had with ron on occasion on a professional basis socially we always had good times and and spent quite a bit of time together he was very good at separating you know this is work time now this is playtime and uh, to that end it may surprise some people that you know my williams contract was all about all the things i couldn't do where my mclaren contract was basically you know you may have well may as well listed all the things that i could do which involved all the dangerous things that i couldn't do in my williams contract and ron took the simple view and i think it was having worked with some you know seriously good drivers in the past that self motivation and desire to be successful will will keep you of avoiding really peak danger until you're on the racetrack so we'd go sneak and i would go skiing with ron in winter training sessions <laughs> you know crazy we'd be racing each other down a hill um at the end of a training session and and just spending time because he really r- recognized the importance of team building so i think that's the reason why despite not being the best mclaren driver i was able to uh, survive nine seasons with the team because you know i put work effort effort in and 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 tried my best and was always available and he appreciated that, I'm sure. Um, now, I'm jumping around a bit now, but you, you touched earlier on, um, on your childhood and the fact that you're a country boy and you can, you can take it all in and, and adapt in these current situations. Just, just reflect on your childhood for us, because um, I, I believe that you got your first go-kart at about the same age that your son is now, so 11. Is that right? Yes. How did, how did you make that kind of transition? I mean... You, you had um, motors, motorsport in the family to, to an extent, didn't you? Just tell us about that. Yeah, my, my father had raced carts and had actually won the Scottish Karting Championship, I think, when he was 14. And that was the same year that his father passed away. So his opportunity to keep racing suddenly stopped because his mother, um, you know, didn't, you know, support it or, or, or was able to support it. So he, he was old enough as a teenager to, to have the passion for motorsport, but didn't have the outlet anymore. And then therefore, when, when he took over the family transport business uh, and, and had a little karting team supporting a couple of local racers. So I went to you know, Silverstone and Donington and Cadwell Park and Brands Hatch and all these tracks uh, when I was sort of five, six, seven, eight years old, just as a kid watching carts, because carting used to go on these, these circuits at the time. It was very popular, the long circuit carting. So 11 was the earliest you could start. And unlike today, where, of course, you get your kid out there, you know, in simulators and testing for days before they go racing, I literally got a cart from my 11th birthday. And I think the next weekend, I was at a racetrack racing. <laughs> you know, it just They just kind of put you in the cart and said, off you go. And uh, it, I had to sort of laugh when Dayton did his first race uh, last year. He, he was doing the warm-up lap for the race. And I remember thinking, I haven't spoken to him about how you do a start. You know, because it, it, at all the preparation we'd done, at no point had I taken time out to sort of consider, does he know what to do? And, you know, they kind of, they, they get it, don't they? You know, kids, when one kid starts to run, the other kid starts to run. So when one car goes, the other one goes. So he was fine. But uh, yeah, things have changed, obviously, a great deal. But yeah, racing was in the family. Uh, it was inevitable that my brother, who's older, three years older, myself, and then my younger sister, were all in a lucky position to be given carts and little motorbikes to play in the fields around the, the, the house. So we all had that opportunity. And I was the, the one that kind of took to racing. My sister raced 
uh, and, and had some good success. But unfortunately, she was six years younger. And I moved into cars when I was 17 and won both the championships and got the call from Jackie Stewart. And my career was kind of growing. And of course, the focus went on me and, and disappeared off my sister. So she never got the chance to really realize her, her talents. But, um, you know, she, she never held that against me. And, and uh, my brother runs the family business. And, um, and, you know, here I am talking to you. Uh, how, how much talent do you think she had? Well, the family all said, and I never argued because I think there was enough evidence to suggest she was more naturally talented than I was. I think it took me quite a while to get the hang of it. I was quite a shy kid and I definitely wasn't someone to sort of jump in and, and, and tackle uh, opportunity. I sort of tentatively worked my way towards understanding what the challenge was. And Lindsay was a lot braver and a lot more sort of gung-ho. And I think that enabled her to, to get stuck in and have success at a greater pace than maybe I did. But I think my methodical approach ultimately meant that, you know, when I got to a point where I had enough experience, there wasn't really many stones I hadn't looked under as in terms of opportunity. And I, I see with our son, you know, he, he's naturally, I think, quite good. But he, he kind of skips to the bit he enjoys and doesn't do all the bits that I think are important. You know, I'm quite methodical in that you know, the Mr. Miyagi kind of, you know, wax on, wax off. You're, you're not doing it for the polishing. You're doing it for the discipline. And, uh, and Dayton's very much, well, not interested in that. I just want to go fast. So there's, there's many different ways to skin a cat. But I think it's normal that... Uh, actually, why do we use that expression, skinning a cat? You know, I've always thought that. I've always thought it's just who, such a mental image. Who wants to oh. skin a cat anyway? So I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, many different ways to do things. Uh, but of course, I defer to the approach that I had and, and took over many years because it worked in terms mm. of getting to the ultimate championship goal, which was Formula One. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. But anyway, we'll find out if his way works. I know. Do you know, it's interesting. I don't know how you teach that to a kid. It's difficult parenting skill to hone, isn't it? Because you don't want to suppress that urge that they've obviously got and that he's obviously got, but you also want to show them that that work ethic counts, as you proved from all your time in Formula One. Okay, time for Bose's handy tips about how we can all cope a bit better over the next few weeks and potentially months um, under lockdown. I think that's part of the problem, isn't it? We just don't know how long this is going to last. And that lack of control over our own lives can let anxiety creep in. But hopefully, if we can all follow these little nuggets of advice, it may just help. OK, first of all, take time for yourself to stay centred and sane. Number two, seize moments of calm. They may be few and far between, but they are out there. You just need to grab them both hands. Number three, find your sanctuary away from the chaos. Now, if like me, your whole house is chaotic, then that might be hard, but there must be a little corner somewhere where you can take yourself off and just have a moment or two. Because remember, timeouts aren't just for kids. It's really important to take a little me time because it can go a long way. I know that sounds a bit selfish because I always feel guilty if I go off and read a book or listen to some music or have a bath, all three at the same time. But I think and hope that we all come back to our jobs in the house with the kids, with our family, as better mothers, better partners, more productive, if we have taken a bit of time out. 
cabin fever is real. So one way to smash that oppressive feeling is to learn something new. Take up a new hobby, for example. Don't resist and fight the new norm. Embrace it. Shape it to suit you. For example, you could move rooms, change the layout at your home, create a new space dedicated to a new hobby. Make working for home work for you. Don't be afraid of the silence, if indeed it exists at any point during your day. It can be truly golden after all. Try to block out unhelpful noise and that will also reduce your anxiety. It's not where you work, it's how you work. So make it work for you with a little bit of help from Bose. Feel more, do more, be more with Bose. Your big break in Formula One, I'm sure the opportunity would have come otherwise, but it, it did come following probably the greatest tragedy ever in our sport um, of losing Ayrton Senna. Um, how difficult was that for you to step up uh, and fill his seat at Williams in those circumstances? Well, I think obviously a lot of time has passed. So, you know, details of the, the emotions subside over time but one thing that's quite clear I think as I look back you know approaching my 50th year the benefit of youth is you don't know what you don't know you don't know you don't know it <laughs> you, know, you, you just you're just living for the moment and as you get older you've experienced things and and then you become I guess a bit more sentimental and a bit more emotional about the, the impact of, of certain events so in terms of being a test driver for Williams the greatest driver arguably ever certainly one of the greatest of that period mm. being killed in a car that I'd been testing the week before and had been part of the development program was incredibly shocking but at no point did I ever feel that I was going to stop racing on the basis of it and I think this is just the way we are made and in the same way that humans we get on with things after tragedy and you know humans have been practicing this and dealing with it for generations before we came along it is part of life dealing with loss and uh, it's it my my approach at the time was to recognize that I could be a, an opportunity you know it could be an opportunity for me to to become a Grand Prix driver but it, I, I decided and I spoke to my manager at the time that I didn't want us to approach the Williams team because they had you know terrible circumstance to deal with and I'd been testing for them for three years. So they had all the information they needed to make a judgment as to whether I could be the replacement. So I, I, I didn't have any contact in terms of being a driver. Clearly I had contact with the team uh, and I'd had a, a fax from, from Ayrton and, and Patrick and Frank and a few of the marketing team on the Sunday morning when uh, I was racing at Silverstone and I, I, and the old fashioned faxes that came through. Uh, remember those days and, and I've, still got, I've still got the fax actually. And it, it had Ayrton had signed it just very best, you know, for you know to you actually he put on there. But so you know that was the morning, and then by the afternoon we'd all sadly you know seen seen the accident, and that came off the back of Rubens' crash on the Friday, Roland Ratzenberger sadly losing his life on the Saturday, and and then Ayrton's tragedy. So uh, it is what it is, and it was what it was. And three weeks later, I was racing in in Barcelona for the team, and. I could never replace Ayrton, but what I could do was give 100% effort out of respect to the team, out of respect to his legacy, and that's the approach I took. And did you feel an increased pressure because of that? Was no, not at all. 
No, I, again, and I don't know if you can relate to this in your own personal career. For me, pressure is when I feel I'm not in control. You know, if I feel I'm prepared and not in control in some sort of control freak kind of way, because there's so much of my career that was full of uncertainty. You can't possibly know what's going to happen at the start. You can't possibly know what's going to happen at the first corner and many other things you don't know. But I, I, what I mean is if I felt prepared, if I felt I'd done my homework, if I felt that I'd got all the information that was available at that point, I was comfortable mm -hmm. in making a decision. And right down to the point, Patrick Head came on the radio and, you know, I could bore you with all the details as to why we didn't run on Friday. Um, but the first time I drove the car in Barcelona was actually for qualifying because there was Max Mosley had imposed some rule changes. Only Ferrari and Minardi had done the practice sessions. Williams and a number of other teams decided not to. So the very first time I drove the car at a Grand Prix was going into qualifying. Now, obviously, I knew the car. I knew the circuit. But Patrick Head came on the radio and said, David, uh, you know, no pressure. He didn't really need to be on the radio because, as you know, Patrick Head is such a booming voice. He was, right, David, yeah, no pressure. Just go out and have some fun and, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I go on my radio from the car and go, thank you, Patrick. Um, just one question. When I leave the garage, do I turn left or right? Of course, I was just having some fun and looking for the radio button to give me an answer. And he sees all the mechanics are laughing and he realizes I'm taking the piss. So, um, yeah, I felt very relaxed because I, I wasn't trying to be someone else. I was just there to be myself and to try and deliver for the team. Mm. And now your move from Williams to McLaren um, meant legal action was required. This is something that really fascinates me in Formula One. Was there any bad blood? How long did it last? Because, you know, this is such a small paddock. And I'm always interested to know if there's any kind of hangover from these situations, you know, moving between teams. You know, when you see, even now, you know, you see Daniel winking and waving at Christian. They're still friends. There's no real bad blood there. Um, but... Obviously, it's going to smart a bit. And actually, I'm quite intrigued to know what you would have thought if the shoe had been on the other foot, would Ron have taken it so well as Frank? I think that part of the business, they're so used to trying to get one over on each other. That's part of the, 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 the politics of the sport, the intrigue of the sport. You know, when they go into all these team principal meetings or you know, with the commercial rights holders or, you know, as Bernie as it was at that time or the FIA, they're not going in unprepared. They haven't had, you know, lobbied around and decided who they're going to vote with and who's helping who. And even, you know, today it's maybe more political than it's ever been because there's so many teams that have got Mercedes engines or so many teams that have got Ferrari engines and, you know, some that have got Honda. And of course, they're, they're going to bunch together because somebody will hold something back if they don't. So the leverage ultimately is, is strong enough to, to control largely what's going to happen. Um, so when, when sometimes I hear, uh, you know, some of the things that have been proposed in meetings, you knew before they went into the meeting, if it was commercial rights holder, the teams would never agree to it. So I personally would just skip to the bit where you get things that they might agree to because I, I, just don't, I just don't see the point of wasting heartbeats in conversation. But a lot of people do. A lot of people literally love meetings. <laughs> you know, they love yeah. sitting 
and not really deciding anything. That certainly wouldn't work from the way my personality is, uh, the way I'm wired. But, um, you know, you know that, that legal process that I had to serve notice on Williams to tell them that I was going to McLaren, Frank was fine with it. He was like, well, the lawyers will decide. I remember Patrick came into his office and he was furious and he was like, you'll never drive for this team again. And then wandered out and I remember Frank going, well, you know, that's Patrick, but we'll, we'll see what the lawyers say. And so I was racing for Williams through 95. I had to go to a contract recognition board, which is the body that can that hold all of the driver's contracts in Switzerland, even today. So it's, it's a body that you know, will decide rather than having to go to, to a court of law on who has the primary contract if there's an issue. And I had to be in that meeting sitting on the McLaren side of the desk opposite Williams, who I was racing for, to then have them say that McLaren had the dominant contract for 96 and then to go out and then go to the next Grand Prix and race for Williams. And, and Patrick, uh, sorry, Frank was, was really, he was fine with it. He, of course, he would prefer not to have gone through the process. But he, I think he enjoyed being cross-examined by the QC and, you know, he's a very high intellect man. And, and so he needs that mental stimulation. And it was just part of the, the ins and outs of going Grand Prix racing. So in the end, uh, I went to, went to McLaren. But the backstory on that is I actually turned up uh, December 94, the end of my first season. We'd agreed a two-year contract with Williams. So we turned up at um, Frank's office and... Uh, just as the, the uh, lawyer for Williams is getting contracts out, Frank says, I've changed my mind. I don't want to do a two-year contract. I want to do a one-year contract. So that was news to me. It was news to my manager. And it was news to Frank's lawyer, who then is looking at the papers that he's prepared. And uh, so we go into Frank's secretary's office. And we've already been talking to Ron Dennis about driving for, for McLaren in '96. And we, we, my manager and I phoned Ron and Ron said, come to walking and we will do a deal for 96, 97. So we went back into Frank's office, agreed to do the one year deal for 95, drove to walking, agreed a deal for 96, 97 for McLaren. I then jumped in my car and drove to Scotland for Christmas with my parents. And I, I got home and I said, oh, there's, there's good news. I'll be a Grand Prix driver for the next three years, uh, but I'll be with two different teams. And you can imagine the confusion. My mum's a, you know, a, a, a lovely, typical Scottish housewife. Yeah, so she was probably in between you know, cooking or doing something and going, oh, that's nice, dear. You know, my father's going, what? How does that work? So anyway, that was the backstory. Otherwise, I would have stayed at uh, Williams. I find it fascinating, though, because I don't think there's another sport like it where you're all kind of, bundled into this paddock together can you imagine that the sort of acrimonious deal between two agents in football fighting over one player and then all having to sort of be kicked by jowl for you know at the next race and, and and getting on with it because that was I remember I always go back to this but Murray Walker said to me before I first um, came into the sport anyone who's a wrong and gets weeded out I'm sure he put it more eloquently than that but the point is and it goes back to your earlier point um, I think everybody in F1 can see a bit of themselves in each other and that's why when we collaborate it works so um, I don't know I don't I don't know another sport that's similar to this and, uh, and I, I think it's fascinating to see how the dynamic changes between drivers and teams and the loyalty that they've got to show to each other that then changes but then you know there can't be any bad blood because 
we've all got to live together. Yeah. Well, the other thing as well, and I think this is why, and of course I would say this, to use a Ron expression, <laughs> Ron would say that very often, but I would say this because I've, um, I've had my life in, in motor racing and Formula One, but I really think it, it enables us to cut the crap and get to the point. You, you don't have to like everybody. There has to be respect. You just can't, you can't work with people you, you know, or you can work for a short period of time with people you, you don't respect, but not for a long period of time. So there's a, there's a large amount of respect in the paddock, even if there's not a, a large amount of friendship. There are some good friendships, as you know, um, but there's, there's a whole bunch of people that, you know, we would see that we don't really know or we wouldn't really ever think to say anything more than hello to. It's just the way of, of that particular environment. But what I think is great is the business of Formula One and the business of sport teaches people to put something behind them and move on and i think a lot of other industries and um you know i see it i've got some friends in the, in the music industry as you have and i see sort of talent agents and i'm sure agents generally and in, in the sort of television world and you and, and the friends that you have within in that world they, they can be real horrible people because they get power because they're representing a big star and they treat people horribly and of course, as long as they've got the power of the star, the, the people sort of have to pan, you know, pan, pander to them. Is that the word? Um, but they, and if they ever lose the power, get found out. But of course, but why they would ever want to operate at that level? But it's because a lot of others do. You know, you have to kind of be a bit of an asshole in that world uh, to get to be seen as the hard deal maker. And it's, it just doesn't have to be like that. You know, there's been some really tough negotiations done between Ron and Ayrton, or I'm sure Lewis and Toto, or Christian and Sebastian, or, you know, Daniel and, and you know, Mr. Matashitz. You know, they're probably, that relationship's probably never going to quite heal, but certainly uh, Helmut and, and Christian would, I'm sure, have no problem with the fact that Daniel took a different route because they've got the racing respect. And that's the key thing. I think that we have to get over things. And therefore, we just, we make our point and then we move on. Mm. And it's one of the most difficult things, I think, for the rest of the world and other industries. People, they just have to keep telling you the same thing over and over and over. And even though you've heard them, you know, you don't always have to agree to be able to move on. Yeah. Very true. Um, now, listen, I want to talk about your, your racing CV because it is impressive. I listen, I know you always talk yourself down and it's a lovely trait of yours. But the reality is, is that you were competing at a time with um, arguably two of the greatest drivers of all time um, in, uh, in Mika and Michael. And you still managed to come runner up in 2001 um, to Michael Schumacher in that all-conquering Ferrari. Tell us what your experience was like um, racing with those guys, and who do you believe was the better driver? Obviously, you know, on paper, Michael Schumacher is was the best driver of the two. But um, I know that you certainly held Mika Hakkinen in very high regard as well. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Well, I, of course, I never drove the same car as Michael, so I don't have the direct comparison or the benefit of an overlay to, to see how we approach the lap. But in simple terms, and of course, an opinion, never to be proven one way or the other. And I respect other people's view, of course. But my gut feeling is, looking at what Mika did in, in his various other um, roles in Formula One, I think he was the more naturally fast driver. But I think that what Michael was exceptional at is he had great speed, no question, but he could deliver that speed relentlessly weekend in, weekend out, lap after lap, wet, dry. And I think he had a physical ability, which was beyond Mika's. You know, I think Mika trained hard and all the things, you know, that I know I did. But you, I just think Michael had a physicality about him that maybe came from, um, you know, his racing in sports cars and his approach into Formula One. That They upped the ante for all the drivers that had previously been in Formula One. And I think he just, therefore push the boundaries in, in every level. So it deserved the success he had because he worked hard for it. Um, relentless in his approach to dealing with the team and being at the factory and being in the debriefs and pushing people. So in that respect, the better all-rounder, of course, uh, would, would be Michael. But um, I think if the Michael and Mika were teammates, and they'd certainly come up through racing against each other, I think Mika might edge him in qualifying, and then maybe Michael would edge him in, in race victories. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I like it. Um, now, thinking about your time at Red Bull, um, I wonder whether you quite get the kudos that you deserve in, in terms of the input you put into setting up that team. Because obviously a lot of the success came after you left, um, but you got a handful of podiums when you were there. Um, how involved did you feel the the inception of Red Bull and how proud are you of the fact that they've obviously gone on to do incredibly well um, and, and, and you were there right at the very start. Yeah, I'd already decided and, uh, you know, buddy of yours, Martin, was my contractual manager, Martin Brundle. And Martin and I, during the 2004 season, had spoken to various teams. We had spoken to Jaguar. And I remember sitting in, our, in, in my, my apartment in Monaco and doing very simple pros and cons and ultimately deciding I didn't want to race for Jaguar. I just didn't believe that there was something that was fundamentally going to change what they'd been doing in the past. So although I hadn't decided my time in Formula One was over, I decided that I wasn't going to drive for them. And then, of course, everything changed because Jaguar got sold to Red Bull. Uh, the management structure was changed very quickly. Christian was put in place. 
Uh, there was then another conversation that Martin had with Helmut Marko. Um, I spoke with Christian, and it was agreed that I would go and effectively drive the Jaguar that had been repainted a Red Bull in Jerez at the end of that 2004 season. And I uh, was still on a contract to McLaren, but they released me to go and do the, the test and plane overalls. And before getting in the car on the very first day, uh, there was a senior engineer at Jaguar who'd, who'd been inherited over, who'll remain nameless, who was shouting at me, get in the car, you've got to get in the car. And I'm looking, thinking, who's this guy? And uh, I didn't know who he was because I'd worked with him briefly, briefly at McLaren before, uh, briefly. And uh, busy trying to work out who you're talking about now, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and... Um, and I, I always, the only track I ever went out first and wanted ownership of was Monte Carlo. Any test track, I never wanted to be first out because test tracks, the, you know, the dust and stones and all that stuff, it's always good to have someone else go and you know, clear the debris before you go and shake your own car down. So I had my own strategy. So instead of being out at nine o'clock, I'd be out at five past nine. It didn't fundamentally change the, the overall you know, what you achieved in the day. It was just always the way I'd operated. He had a different approach, which was, the, you know, the drivers get in the car at 10 to 9 and as the lights changed, they were going out. and yeah. It obviously meant something really important to him. But he just didn't approach it in a very professional way. So I did the installation lap, which, you know, means just one lap to check the car. Got out of the car, phoned Martin and said, I'm not driving here tomorrow. Get me out of the test. So even before I'd done one lap in anger, I'd phoned Martin and said, get me out of here. So, um, and so I did one day and went well and, and Mr. Madishitz came and I spent time with him. So it wasn't about not wanting to, to race for Red Bull. It's just I didn't want to be two days surrounded by people that I just didn't respect. Um, because as you remember, I said earlier, being with people you don't like is not a problem. But if you being around people you don't respect is a major issue. So I uh, spoke to Mr. Madishitz. Uh, you know, asked the questions that I felt were, were right to judge his commitment and went away from that test. And, and, you know, although I knew there'd be some people that wouldn't be continuing within the team, um, which obviously I, I discussed with Christian, um, signed a contract and got on the journey with Christian and the rest of the team to, to re, you know, repackage what was fundamentally a good group of people. You know, a lot of the people are still there today the fundamentals were great. And a lot of them actually uh, I had shared either uh, houses with when I was driving for Paul Stewart racing back in the 90s. You know, Simon Adams is still there. Um, you know, David Boyce or Boise. Uh, you've got Tony who, who uh, runs the running shortcut. There's a, a whole bunch of people that are still there, people I worked with years ago. So the core is good. And then we had to just restructure the ones that had inflated opinions of themselves. No room for that in Formula One. No, very true. So was that, was that enough to persuade you to be a part of this movement, this, this Red Bull? Because you know, clearly it was an exciting time, but you didn't know, nothing was guaranteed. But was it the people that were enough to get you over the line to want to race for them? It was the, the feeling that with Christian at the helm and with Mr. Madish's understanding and financial commitment uh, you know, we spent a lot of time in between races, going to Salzburg, sitting down, explaining to him where we were at, what we needed. You know, if there was large investment items, then we, we, we didn't have the budget sitting there to just go out and buy gearbox dinos or, or things like that. We had to go and 
and sell to him why it was an important thing to have and why it would help the, the team in the future. And I think, you know, not all the conversations were, were easy and not all the conversations we got what we wanted, but more often than not, if you really believe in something, you know, even Adrian was not an easy sell in the beginning because Adrian had certain expectations. And, uh, but Mr. Marishitz trusted and, and the team grew and I ran out of, of, of time and energy in my career. Uh, but I still have a great relationship with the team today because I didn't swim against the tide, recognized that Sebastian was a coming man. And I, I you know, stepped to one side and the rest is, as, as we say, is history. So uh, delighted to see the way the team has grown for four times world champions, continually a thorn on the side of Mercedes and Ferrari, which as uh, in our roles is fantastic for competitiveness of Formula One and, and gives us excitement when it comes to the broadcasting. And long may that continue because like Mercedes, like Ferrari, like so many of the other teams, there's, there's, there's quality people there. And you, it's great when people, when quality and hard work is rewarded. It's an interesting um, journey to start on at that stage in your career, though. You know, when you, we, we came so close to the world title in 2001 uh, and then to years later to, to actually help grow a team that you really didn't know what you're getting into. And you talk about it being a, a hard sell, someone like Adrian Ewey into to Mataschitz. Why do you think you needed that at that stage in your life and your career? I wasn't over Formula One. I wasn't ready to leave Formula One, not because of financial reasons, not because of need for speed. I just felt there was something more. There was more I could do. And therefore, it was the perfect opportunity because I had experience, I had a voice, I had an opinion, and I wanted to share that and shape, shape the team. And, you know, Christian has, has made the team obviously incredibly successful, but when he started the journey, he was relatively inexperienced in Formula One. And, and we were able to bounce things off each other. And if I had a view or an opinion, I would share it with them. If I didn't, I would say, look, you know, I simply don't know. But, you know, I feel that I learned quite a lot about successful Formula One teams being with Williams and McLaren and what it takes. And it, it's not about fantastic individuals. It's about a great team. So you, you would trade one genius who, who doesn't, can't fit in for a lot of great people who can work together because that's where your strength comes from. And, uh, you know, we talk about an Adrian or anyone, any of the headline names of being geniuses, but they'll be the first as well to say that, yes, they lead their team in the roles they have, but they rely on their team of people to feed them the results from wind tunnel and CFD and all the rest of it. No one person can do that alone. And, you know, even though the driver's out on track alone, he's down to the skills of his mechanics at the pit stop, his team designing and building the car. It's just a wonderful example of what can be achieved when people come together. And, you know, both of you and I know, and many of the people that are listening to this, money in itself doesn't get you success. And this is where if you give all the teams 100 million or whatever number you want to dream up under this cost cap, it's just an absolute dream to imagine they'll all be as competitive as each other because Formula 2 is a couple of million bucks a year and there's a difference between the top teams in Formula 2 and the, 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 the not top teams and they all have the same car. Mm -hmm. So there will still be the haves and have-nots. There will still be a gap. And, um, you know, and even if you kind of can make basically suppress everyone down to a certain expenditure, we'll, there'll be 
job losses, clearly, because you won't suddenly need a thousand people to build a Grand Prix car if you don't have the budget. So there'll be upsides in some, some aspects of the business, but there'll be many people having to find jobs in other industries. In the pink and bows, really want to help during this lockdown. Now, whether we can or not is another question, but we can try and we're going to do that by giving away some more Bose noise cancelling headphones. To win them, just share mini anecdotes from your time in lockdown and give us some feedback on this series. Always put in the hashtag Bose and tag in a couple of mates to do the same and you never know those headphones could be yours. Good luck, stay safe and stay connected. Um, you talked about sharing ideas and communicating your, your sort of enjoyment in that. How far has broadcasting gone to sort of give you that fix? Well, it's interesting, again, because I actually, I struggle to remember what the high was. What was the real desire and pleasure of driving a Grand Prix car? I don't remember ever going oh my god this is incredible you know i think it was there was always such a desire to be quick and such a desire to win that that actually suppresses the sort of fandom the 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 step back and going wow look at the how quick that is because you're in the moment trying not to crash so in the same way i don't really remember uh, having a, a big high from driving a grand prix car I don't really remember getting a big high from being involved in broadcasting, but what I, I do enjoy is responsibility. And the, clearly there's key moments of driving a Grand Prix car where you have full responsibility. And there's a few moments in broadcasting where you have full responsibility. And that I think is what the similarities are. And you'll know very well from, from your own broadcasting when you're going live and you have a technical issue you know, the process of saying what you know you're going to say is your bread and butter. and We should all be able to do that. But it's how you deal with complications and adversity that really shows how in control and how prepared you are. And those are actually the moments where I think you get that little buzz of, I handle that professionally, because that, that's what we want to be. We want to be professional. Yeah. Tell me, what was Martin Brundle like as a manager? Because I mean, I think the world of him, as you know, um, he is such a, a fair, decent human being. He's also a really fantastic team player. Like he really cares about the team. I, I would think he was had quite a wise, uh, a wise head on his shoulders, obviously. But also, just you know, he's quite calm, isn't he? Good at giving advice. Did all that translate into being a decent manager? So my recollection of how it came about, I'd been managed by IMG, International Management Group, Mark McCormack's group. And I actually paid to leave that contract early because I, I just felt that it was made up of brilliantly bright lawyers and marketeers and strategists. But I, again, I'm a village boy and I know countryside, I know trucks and I know racing cars. And all of that other stuff, I just didn't feel that they, they knew the racing world mm. the way I wanted them to know the racing world. So my more, initially, I self-managed with, a, with my accountant and my lawyer, but recognized very quickly, and that was not my ultimate desire, but recognized very quickly that that was, was just 
complicated to maintain a relationship with your team principal on one hand, whilst you know arguing about contractual issues and the other just doesn't work. So uh, I had a conversation, my recollection, and we'll check with Martin, when we were flying to Japan for a Grand Prix when Martin was still a driver. And I remember saying to him, I didn't really know him that well. And truth be known, he probably, because he was, you know, him and Mark Blundell were, were of a similar era, you know, slight age difference, but, you know, they, they were the, 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 Blund, you know, the Blundell brothers or whatever they, they call themselves. So I remember them slightly taking the piss out of me once at a dinner when we were testing an Imola. But that was fine. You know, that you expect a bit of, bit of needle. So um, I, I remember saying to Martin that, you know, maybe he could work with me when he stops racing. And in my recollection is that he, he, he was like, well, that's going to be a long time. So, you know, I don't think that's going to work. I, I, I had in my mind, this, that was his last year. <laughs> so you know, I think, I think he, he found out maybe in the January it was his last year. But anyway, um, that's my recollection of how... You were right. You were right. His, his days were numbered in the sport as a I, Yeah, I recognise. But I just felt that he was, you know, the work he'd done with the GPDA, uh, methodical sensible you you know clearly a very good racing driver with success across different formulas and yeah so without really knowing each other that well we but i but i saw something in martin and i followed my gut instinct and the fact that he knew the paddock and he knew the people and we started working together i remember him not being entirely happy that i wouldn't pay him a percentage of my salary uh, i i decided i'd pay him a salary um, because he was like, I remember him saying, well, Willie Weber and these guys are getting percentages. And I was like, well, go and manage Michael Schumacher. <laughs> I'm David. I'm offering you this. Do you accept? So, you know, it's kind of fun to go through those parts of the negotiation. And then thereafter, I think we worked together for 10 years. He was brilliant, you know, diligent, hardworking. I think got the best he could out of the contracts that were available to me. And I trusted him. And respected him, so you know it was perfect. And being from Norfolk, an another village boy, so the village people, you might say. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, Scottish village, Scottish village folk are different to <laughs> Norfolk village folk. <laughs> I just love this. I just love this idea of you two skipping around the world together, having yeah. lots of fun on the way, doing deals. Uh, now, tell me about your involvement with W Series, because I know that um, you are a massive driving force behind it. Um, I also gather that a big sort of motivating factor for that was um, your sister's legacy. Is that the case? Can you tell us about that story? Yeah, absolutely. So my, my sister passed away a few years ago. And as I mentioned earlier, I, you know, she raced carts, was naturally very talented. And I think had she been given the same support that I had been given, then I have no reason to doubt that she, if she chose, because of course you never know what someone's going to do when they go from, you know, 13, 14 years old up and, uh, into becoming a, um, you know, into a woman. But um, I have the belief that she had the talent to take her career as far as she wanted and certainly to be a professional racing driver. So, uh, you know, I've always, always kind of regretted. And even when she was, when she was alive, she you never held it against me. I'd always, you know, talk to her about it and go, God, you, if you'd stuck with it, then, um, but she, she was happy. Uh, you know, she'd recently got married and had a child and what have you. And then, uh, and so her passing and then W becoming an oppor opportunity 
were sort of separated by a few years, but there was no doubt in my mind when, you know, when I spoke with Catherine uh, Von Muir and, and then Sean Wadsworth, uh, who's, who's ultimately the, the founder, um, that to me, I was like, yep, yeah, absolutely. The, you know, women are not well represented in motorsport. It's, it's a numbers game. Um, to use another McLarenism, which came from Martin Whitmarsh, he used to fondly always say, if you want, you know, if you keep using the same ingredients, you're going to keep getting the same cake. So ultimately, if you want a fundamental change in the outcome, you need a fundamental change in the process. Not exactly complicated wording, but it really, if we keep doing the same thing, but just try and encourage a few more at a younger age, then yes, of course, it will help. But I didn't think it was going to help right now and make a difference right now. And, you know, I'm all for sowing seeds for, for the future, but there's a lot of female talent out there already competing around the world that just, they aren't getting recognized, they aren't getting the, the development, they're not doing the simulator time, they're not being given the, the, the professional platform across the board. So that's where I felt the W could make a change, make a difference. And I think that what we can agree, whether you believe in it or not, and there's many people that are, of course, against it. And, you know, I take the view in life, there's many things I don't understand, there's many things I wouldn't naturally want to do. But if it's not illegal, and it's important to someone else, go for it. I love to see commitment, I love to see people following the dreams, pushing the dreams, doing whatever it is they're doing. Again, if it's not illegal and it's not, you know, making, well, I think illegal kind of covers everything, doesn't it? You know, in terms of it's not putting people in uncomfortable positions. So I was a little bit surprised some of the negativity and actually some of the negativity from women, actually, because I think we both recognize I'm not a woman. So it's not doing anything for mankind. It's doing something for womankind. And uh, I think in, given we've done six races, We've, we, we've really put a lot of women on the map who deserve to be recognized as talented racing drivers. And we've helped others find an opportunity again that had lost the opportunity through lack of funding. We've only done one season. Yes, right now is not a great time for so many different industries. Um, but of course, sport is being hit. So we're trying to find other ways to, to keep them developed and active and, and front and center of people's minds because that's important going forward. And, you know, of course, my ultimate desire is people always talk about can, can somebody, can, you know, can a woman race in Formula One? Well, the answer is yes, because it's been done. But my primary thing is not, you know, how quickly we can put a woman in Formula One. It's actually how many women can we give opportunities to to, to have the, at least the choice to be a professional, which means you get paid to do what you do for fun. And that doesn't have to be Formula One. There's a whole bunch of championships out there um, that, um, you know, you can be a professional racer. So, um, and I think that you don't have to be a Grand Prix driver to be considered a good racing driver. There's, there's many exceptional talents out there that have raced in rallying or sports cars or touring cars or motorbikes or Formula E or whatever it is. I don't think they're any lesser in, 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 in their talents. They just either didn't get the opportunity or didn't, seek that opportunity and do you think if if w series had been around 20 odd years ago um then Lindsay would be a formula one would have made it into formula one i mean i know it's difficult to say yeah Lindsay had determination she had talent she was not scared you know to get stuck in so i think all the raw ingredients were there and 
you know, you've got to have work ethic and a bit of tenacity as well, because there's a lot of talent out there. So how do you make yourself stand out? And, um, you know, you've got to do something a little bit different. Otherwise, you just, you know, you're in a long line of talented people. So if you're maximizing your talent, you've got to show commitment, work effort. And I, and I think there's a lot of racers, and I'm sure it's the same in other sports and in other industries, who are naturally very talented, but they're just a bit lazy. And therefore, if you don't see the hunger, if you don't see the desire, when it comes down to choosing between two people, you would go for the hungry one, wouldn't you, with talent, rather than the other one who's got talent, that you're just not sure how much they want it, how much they need it. And, you know, that's the thing. I, and even with some of the W racers, and of course I'm not going to say who, but some of them, to me, seem to lack, you know, the ultimate focus and, uh, and desire. Because if you don't set your sights, even if you set them high, if you come up short, you're still, you're still somewhere quite high, aren't you? If you aim for the stars, you'll land on the earth somewhere. But if you're aiming or looking like you're just happy for the opportunity, I just don't think that's enough. And, you know, time will tell, of course, just because I believe something doesn't mean it's, it's, it's a factually going to happen. But you just you have to follow your, your, your gut instincts. It does feel that the, the inaugural year has gone a long way to silencing the critics, the naysayers. Is that how it feels yeah. from, the outs, from the inside looking out? Yeah, I think so. I think that the fact that, you know, we put a lot of time in behind the scenes, uh, away from the racing, uh, FIA have uh, accepted W Series and Super License points, which is part of what's required to actually drive a Grand Prix car. Um, so recognising the championship after one season, I think, is absolutely fair and justified. Again, it, it may surprise some people that um, some, some people were against that, which would seem to me as being just unjustified, unfair, if it doesn't affect you, why, why campaign against something that doesn't affect you? Or why be against something just because you can? If it's good for people, if it's good for racing, if it's good for opportunity, then if, you know, if, it's, a, if it's a competitive thing, then I understand competition. But some people just say no because they can rather than because it's really important. But I think we've, we've really changed a lot of perceptions and um, hopefully off the back of this, we can, we can get racing again and, and, and showing that talent. Yeah, and it's clearly important to you. I mean, it's um, from a personal point of view. You actually, you, oh, well, I mean, you actually sound very similar to your sister. Um, you must miss her an awful lot. Yeah, of course, absolutely. But you know, my, my parents are incredible in as much that, of course, the the, the you know, it's a daughter they've lost, um, but they're they're incredibly. Um, you know, what's for you won't go by you uh, would be an expression my mother would use a lot. You know, what, what has been has been. What, they're not people that would go, why, 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 why? You know, the people who keep asking why all the time when there isn't necessarily an answer. You know, there, there, some things you just can't explain. Some things there isn't an answer for, no matter how, how hard you look for an answer. And, in, and, and, and sometimes when you keep asking why, you're just digging yourself deeper into confusion rather than actually celebrating what's been and, and, and the opportunities that were there and the shared moments. So that's the way I view it. And that's the way my, my parents view it and my brother views it. And, uh, you know, my, my niece is getting, getting older. Um, so, uh, you know, tracking that and, and trying to see some similarities to, to Lindsay. 
and life goes on. And, you know, life isn't fair. There's no guarantee we're going to get our, what does it say, three score years and 10 or whatever the, the old uh, measuring system used to be. So um, none of us choose to be born. We are because someone else makes that choice and some are born into great adversity. We've been born into a very fortunate set of circumstances and life is what it is. You've got to live it to, to the maximum with all the little twists and turns that come. But I mean, you absolutely do that. You are so proactive um, and tenacious with everything you do. I honestly, I don't know how you juggle everything. And obviously being a dad now as well, not now, you, you have been for 11 years. Um, wh why do you, do, I mean, tell me, what is it about your personality that keeps you not only so motivated to do so much in so many different areas of life that, you know, behind the scenes that a lot of people don't know about, um, but also just the way, the methodical way you approach everything is so impressive as well. Well, thank you very much. I, I like people. I like being parts of teams. I'm not very good on my own. Uh, you know, I don't have a, a, an impressive CV of skills, but thankfully uh, I know people that have skills that maybe don't have, you know, don't, don't believe that they can realize that opportunity. And what I can bring is, is maybe helping them with the belief that together we can do this. You know, if they unleash their talent, I'll take care of the, the bits that maybe they don't, they don't know about or they, they're not comfortable with or they, they have doubts. I'll take away those doubts if I can. And if I can't, I'll find someone else to join the team that can take away those doubts and build a, a group of motivated people that respect each other and have desire. And it doesn't mean, of course, everything I do is successful, but touch wood, a lot of the things have been, and they've been very enjoyable, more importantly. So I, I just have a work ethic that's been instilled in me by my parents that, um, you know, I mentioned dreaming earlier. And whenever, I, it's quite unusual for me to, to say, you know, people realizing their dreams, because my grandmother always used to say, dreaming's what you do when you sleep, achieving's what you do when you work. So I've not really said very often that it was my dream to be a Formula One driver because it actually wasn't my dream. It was my desire. It was a strong desire. And it was something that I felt I could achieve if I worked and, and gained success. So it's just words at the end of the day um, and how important are words in as much as you know, people express themselves in a different way. But I quite like the feet on the ground approach to you know, working rather than dreaming. It just sounds like you're doing something a bit more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It sounds a lot like you're hoping rather than actually methodically working towards trying to achieve something. Just getting on with it. It does feel yeah. like you're an enabler as well, that like you enjoy kind of connecting people and, and stepping back and seeing that then take off and, and, and making things happen. I also feel, and I know you're not alone in this, there's plenty of F1 drivers, that you are something of a perfectionist, that you're always striving this pursuit of perfection. Um, and with that, I know with a lot of racers comes OCD. Um, <laughs> just tell me about that side of your personality. Well, I never really realized I was like that until it was pointed out to me I was ironing my socks. And uh, I only wear my socks once now, and then I dispose of them. Can't be seen to be wearing them twice, but uh, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. I would never be that irresponsible unless they were biodegradable. But um, yeah, no, I used to iron my, my training t-shirts and things like that, even though they were going to get sweaty in the gym. I just like things to be prepared. And I think 
a lot of preparation is about sort of cleaning, isn't it? it it's preparing your bag is about putting clean things in your bag, preparing your, your, your purse or your briefcase or whatever it is, is about checking what's there. It's taking it out, looking at it and then re replacing it. And, and what you're doing, and this is where, again, I think, um, you know, Mr. Miyagi, I'll, you know, I'm like this with Dayton, you know, encouraging him to clean his car, clean his helmet. It's not that he can do it better than I would do it because he's 11 years old versus my age and experience. But I want him to understand that when you clean something, it's about looking at it. And when you look at it, you can see the first signs of failures. And, you know, metal things have fatigue uh, or other, you know, items get fatigued. But if you really look at it top and bottom, inside and out, you've got a much better chance of spotting a potential failure rather than just, you know, leaving it to chance. So it's part of the preparation. And that's why, you know, even around the house, I've got no problem cleaning. You know, I had... I was uh, cleaning out the garage the other day and a bag that I had put a load of leaves in um, fell over and all the leaves fell out. And, you know, one of those sort of moments where, you know, and I had, a, I had an air blower at the time. So, of course, when I say they fell out, they went everywhere, you know, on the shelves and everything. And it could be one of those moments where you sort of go, duh, 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 whatever. But I was just able to go, okay, new challenge. And then everything I cleaned up, I had to redo, and it took me some time. But it was my, you know, it's not about it being my fault, but it, I had the time and I could do it properly. So just do it properly. Where some people would flip their chips and waste the energy, getting angry and all the rest of it. So I think you've got so much energy in a given day. So it's about utilizing that energy to, to achieve your goals. So again, yeah. <laughs> you and Ron must have just got on like a house on fire. Can imagine like he would have taken, mind you, I did hear one story. Now tell me if this is true or not, that when you finally left McLaren, when you first then came back into the paddock afterwards, you kind of left your hair a little bit shabby, maybe let the beard grow a little bit like it has now, almost as a like, maybe two fingers up to that whole. <laughs> uh, no, I would uh, Matt Bishop no, told me that. Matt Bishop told me that. Yeah, I don't think I was as childish as that, but I think there was an element of that chapter had come to an end. And you know, I have tremendous respect for McLaren, of course, and and very thankful for the opportunity that I had. But the they had decided um, in two thousand and three that they would they'd sign Montoya for two thousand and five. So I knew, and in fairness to Ron. He came with Martin Whitmarsh at the French Grand Prix 2003 and told me that they'd signed Montoya. So I knew I had the remainder of 2003 and 2004 and I believed in the team. And, and the, Ron didn't need to tell me that. And he, he, and he was trusting me that I wouldn't then go out and tell the world. They didn't announce Montoya until the end of that year. Um, but he had respect. He had respect for me to, to know that I wouldn't go and tell the world mm. and it gave me time to plan my next my next move my, my next chapter so let's say there was it was very unusual to know a year and a half before you had left the team that you would be leaving so well, you know there was an you, element what if you had done incredibly well in that period and then made them have second thoughts i mean i know i know that 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 um that lineup for them was a was a magnificent one but still dc come on yeah, well, it, 
Ron was fine, and, and everything. Martin Whitmarsh you know, made a couple of a couple of comments, and um, I remember at the at the end of that year, uh, Alex Watts had a bike company at the time, and they'd, they'd got a bike sprayed up in McLaren colours. And I remember Martin Whitmarsh laughing as he gave me the bicycle at the end of the year and saying, "On your bike, you know, as in you're fired." So I remember saying to him, um, I'm going to be racing in Formula One and I'm going to take Adrian with me and, you know, we're, we're going to beat you. And I remember him laughing. And then, of course, a couple of years later, when, I, when uh, Adrian had left McLaren to join Red Bull, I remember <laughs> going to, to Martin and saying, I told you so. So the, the joke I had was, they talk about a woman scorned. Well, actually, a Scotsman scorned is much more dangerous. So uh, I had a lot of motivation to, to make things happen after yeah. that. So, and I think Montoya, as good as he was, I think he only lasted a season at McLaren before they kicked him out. Goes back to what you said earlier about personalities needing to fit, however good, however talented someone is, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, look, DC, I've loved our chat. Thank you so much. Um, I know that if I was able to be with you in person, plying you with alcohol, I could get a lot more out of you because you can let your guard down. But I can't do that with social distancing. I don't know I've not been drinking for the last six weeks or however long we've been in lockdown. That's true. That's true. But your company's been lovely nonetheless. So thank you so much for your time. I do appreciate it. And love to all the family. And I hope to see you back at a race very soon. Thank you, DC. Um, love talking to you. Thank you for your time. And thank you for that beard. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, check out some of the clips that I've put up on Instagram of mine and DC's chat because he is sporting the most sensational facial hair. Yes, a wise old man of F1. I hope he keeps it even when we are back on TV reporting from the races, which hopefully will be in July. And hopefully we can pull together uh, a season of sorts for you all to enjoy. Okay, just time for me to remind you to enter our Bose competition to stay connected. Those Bose noise cancelling headphones, which um, are magnificent and (laughs) well worth putting your name in the hat for. So just tell us who your favourite podcast has been and why or give us a little anecdote about your time during lockdown and just add the hashtag bows make sure you tag in friends rate review subscribe and one of you could be walking away with those fabulous headphones which right now are very useful indeed thanks for your company we will speak again very soon i am sure Um, but for now stay home stay safe and healthy and connected Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.